It was 1.17 p.m. on May 17th, excuse me, May 10th, 1996. This was when John Krakauer and his friends summited the peak of Mount Everest. Clears the ice off of his goggles and takes a look around. And it was after 57 hours of being awake. He hadn't slept. And what he had eaten at that point was a bowl of top ramen and a handful of peanut M&Ms. As he enjoys this view, he realizes as he begins to look down that he's not finished. He's reached the top of the mountain, but if he's going to make it out alive, he has to go back down the mountain. Sadly, five of his friends would not make it down. Because as he made his way down the mountain, they got caught in a storm that was something furious. They were unable to finish what they had begun. In his book, John Krakauer writes about this story. And he says, reaching the top of Mount Everest is supposed to trigger a surge of intense elation. Against long odds, after all, I had just attained a goal I had coveted since childhood. But the summit was really only the halfway point. Any impulse I might have felt toward the self-congratulation was extinguished by the overwhelming apprehension about the long, dangerous descent that lay ahead. The reality is, is once you scale a mountain like that, there, there is no other option. Once you begin the journey of ascending the summit of a, of a mountain peak 29,000 feet high, you have to make the decision early on you're going to go back down. Otherwise, the only other option is that you perish, you die. Christians are in a very similar situation. You have to decide at the bottom of the mountain called Christianity that you're going to scale the mountain. You're going to go up and you're going to come back down. I know it's, it's not exactly the same in the Christian life, but you're going to do this. The time to decide whether or not you're going to climb the mountain is not at the top. The time to decide whether or not you're going to climb the mountain is at the bottom to make that decision. Yes, I'm going to do this no matter what that costs. But once you're on the mountain, there really is no turning back point. If you do turn back, you are likely, not likely, you are guaranteed not to make it. You have no resources. You have no ability. The reality is, though, uh, millennials, which is technically my generation, depending on how you count that, and Gen Z, are doing this in massive numbers. They're finding Christianity wanting. And so even though they've scaled part of the mountain, they're saying, you know what, on second thoughts, I'd like something else. I'd like to do something different. According to one book, Youth Ministry, Five Views book, they say this, depending on how you interpret teens, quote, commitment to church or the Christian faith in the first place, between 50 and 88% of those teens are leaving the church by the end of their first year in college. Other research, however, has shown that this departure from church happens before they hit college. College is just the place where you find freedom and the ability to actually make decisions for yourself, and therefore you depart. So, of course, you know that we've, we've hit this subject a few times. And as you know now, after last week, I'm on my way out. I don't, I don't intend to burn bridges with you. That's not my goal here tonight, but I do intend to warn you. The passage that we're about to go into together speaks to this demographic. It speaks to the people who are between 50 and 88% likely to depart. Five out of eight. So let's just say if there's 180 of us in this room here, you count 10 people from five to eight of those people, the projections are that you're going to leave. You're going to depart from the faith. You're going to no longer follow Christ in college. And sadly, uh, I, I don't think that there's a lot of statistical difference in our congregation, our people. 
Now I hope for better things and I don't want to see you guys all depart, which is why this sermon needs to happen. This sermon is called How Not to Lose Your Faith. And I, I am obviously very concerned that you don't lose your faith. If you have any profession of faith in Christ, tonight you need to hear the sermon. And it's going to be a hard sermon because I want to follow the context and the contours of the text. And it's heavy and it's hard and you need to hear it. I need to hear it. My concern is that you don't depart. And really the, the burden of the text here, the burden of the pastor, the preacher, he's essentially going to tell you and me, look, if you're going to stay in the faith, if you're going to stay following Christ for the rest of your life, no matter work, what college you go to, no matter how you, uh, how you go to the next season of life, or even in this particular phase right now, no matter what happens to you, here's how you stay plugged in and rooted and grounded in Christ. I, I, I've summarized it like this. Like if you're going to stay faithful, Christians must strive to grow or be doomed to go. A little sing-song, yeah, I know, a little cheesy, but I think that'll stick. Christians must strive to, gr to grow or be doomed to go. Now, if you're a theologian, you're going to say, well, hold on a second, Pastor Rod, there's nothing about the Spirit of God in there. There's nothing about once saved, always saved, or uh, sometimes we call it the uh, preservation of the saints or the perseverance of the saints. There's nothing in there about that. And I would say you're right, because that's not in the text necessarily. Again, we're going to follow the contours of the text. And the, the major thrust of what we're going to read tonight is if you're going to stay in the category of following Christ, you're going to get on the mountain, you're going to keep climbing the mountain, and you have to keep climbing. You have to keep working. You can't stop and take a break. You can't just throw your hands in the air and say, well, I'm tired. I just need to lean against the mountain and sleep for a couple hours. No, the, 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 the thrust of what you're going to hear tonight is that you must start the Christian race and keep going and not stop. That's kind of a no-brainer but it's a reminder that all of us need to hear. So turn with me tonight to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11, and we're going to take it all the way through uh, chapter 6, verse 12. So we have a lot of territory to cover. We can't cover every nuance, but I do want to cover the thrust with you. Hebrews chapter 5, starting at verse 11. Let's find out how we cannot lose our faith. Verse 11. About this, we have much to say. And he's talking about the last thing we covered, not last week, but the week before that, the Melchizedek priesthood. He's saying, look, we want, we want to talk a lot about this. There's much more to say about that. And he'll pick it back up in chapter 7, which we'll get to in a few weeks. But he says, right now, we have a lot to say about this, and it's hard to explain. It's hard to explain. Why? Because you're not smart enough? No, he says, you have become dull of hearing. So it's not a matter of intellectual capacity. He's not saying you're too dumb to understand. He says, no, you're too dull to understand. You're lazy listeners. You're not hearing the way you should. And now he lays into them. This is a pastor, a preacher talking to them. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need someone to teach you the fundamentals. What's the gospel? Who's God? How, creator, holy, just, loving. He says, look, you guys ought to have been beyond this at this point to the point where you should be able to teach others. You're not there because you become dull of hearing. Now, it's important. You're going to come back to this in a little bit here, but this whole dull of hearing section, that's going to come back at the end of our passage in chapter 6, verse 12. So just keep that in the, in the back of your mind for now. I can't talk to you the way I want to because I can't. You're dull of hearing. You're lazy listeners. He goes on. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. So he's talking about a baby. A baby feeds at mom's breast. People that grow up after this who are weaned off of mama, they eat real food. They eat solid food. He says, you guys, you church, are acting like you're infants in the faith. You're still getting the milk. You need the meat. You should have progressed by this point. Everyone who lives on milk, on, on elementary teaching, is unskilled in the word of righteousness. You don't, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand what the gospel is and its effect on your life. 
because you're a child spiritually. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, those who have progressed beyond the milk. The mature are those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The mature are those who have had the word of God shape their hearts and minds in such a way where they can now see good and evil. Even when there's shades of gray and difficulty between the two, I thought about the, uh, the fact that in the latest season of all of our lives, we all have to wrestle and still wrestle through this concept of wearing masks. Everyone from the governor's office down below are saying you should wear your mask, you should wear your mask. Uh, senators and state leaders are saying you should wear your mask. It's a loving, compassionate thing to do. And of course, Christians are caught in the crosshairs saying, well, hold on a second here. Does the government have the ability to do that? Uh, what's the Christian response? Now that we know that they're largely ineffective, does that change anything about how I wear them or whether I wear them? As a Christian, do I have a responsibility to obey a mandate by my government that wasn't lawfully uh, placed? Or is there something about my Christian faith that informs how I I think about masks and, uh, and uh, so, 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 uh, submitting to my governing authorities. There's a lot of questions there. Christians who are mature in their faith can look at the subject matter at hand and say, okay, I can understand what's happening. I know what Romans 12 says. I know what 1 Peter 2 says. I also know that there is a limitation to the governing authorities. And I also know that the governing authorities are meant to enforce what is good, good by God's definition, not their own, of course. So, the spiritually mature have their powers of discernment trained. For, much, for most of us, this was a complicated question. I'm not saying it's easy necessarily, but for the mature Christian, there's a lot more meat on the bone for them to think through as they consider questions like whether or not to wear a mask or whether I should get the vaccine or not get the vaccine. Should I move out of California because of all these restrictions? Or should I stay here because I'm called to be a Christian in California? Author of Hebrews would say, look, if you're a child, you're going to struggle with this and you're not going to even know because we need to start from the basics with you, the gospel. But if you're a mature Christian, you have the powers of your discernment trained because you've grown, practicing the distinction between good and evil by knowing the word of righteousness. Remember, so if you look up here at this last uh, in, verse, in verse 13, he says, someone who's on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. The, the corollary or the contrast is for those who are mature, they are skilled in the word of righteousness. They know the word of God. They know the gospel. And so they're able to use this information here to distinguish between good and evil. They're able to take the word of God and to make clear in their minds, okay, based on what God's word says, I have a concept in categories uh, that scripture helps inform, inform me for, inform with me. With, for, because why? For. <laughs> in chapter six, in chapter 6, he builds on this. So again, so notice the tone here. Pastor of the Hebrews uh, letter is saying, look, you're not where you should be. You need to grow up. You're, uh, you're living on the, you know, mama's uh, breast. You need to grow up and eat uh, spiritually mature food. In, verse, in chapter 6, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Stop acting like a child and move on toward adulthood, spiritual ad adulthood. And so one of those things that he talks about, the elementary doctrine, he has three doublets here. Here's the elementary doctrine he's referring to. He's saying, laying a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. That's the gospel, repentance and faith. He says, we don't, need to, we don't want to lay that foundation again. It is important because it's foundation, but we don't need to go back there. We need to uh, build that foundation and then build upon it. And that's the first thing. Then he says, another el element of elementary doctrine, doctrine is instruction about washings and laying on of hands. 
Now, to be quite honest with you, I'm not exactly sure what he's referring to here. In fact, as I read, read, read the commentaries, it really doesn't matter a whole lot. The washing is probably some form of baptism or maybe anointing. Laying on of hands could be a reference to uh, commissioning, to, mis- to mi- ministry, or to the reception of the Holy Spirit. Don't know exactly what he has in mind, but that's not essential. His point is that we're not trying to lay the foundation of elementary doctrine again. And the last one is one that you should be able to understand here, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment aspects of elementary biblical teaching, Christian teaching, that uh, he doesn't want you to remain in. You should know there's a resurrection for the just and the unjust. Everyone's going to be resurrected. You should also know at the end of your life, there's eternal judgment. I was at Mission Viejo High School today, and I had the privilege of, of sharing the gospel with students. Some of them were ours and some of them were not. But I had the privilege of sharing this basic information. And, and do you think I was talking about the Melchizedekian priesthood with them? Never even brought it up. Not even once. <laughs> Did not talk about the Melchizedekian priesthood because it's elementary. And that's the whole point of this year. I was trying to be elementary, and he's saying, good, you should know the elementa- elementals. Let's go on beyond that. And he says, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to move on from this if the Lord permits. God's responsible for our, our growth in our faith, and so we want to trust and trust him with all of that. Okay. Here's where I'm going with. I, I gave you a, a really a summarization of this passage here. And I'm saying, look, Christian, oops, uh, Christians need to strive to grow. And this is where I want to focus our first, our first point here. If we're going to ascend the mountain of Christianity and not apostatize, not depart from the faith, we need to have this mindset of striving to grow in Christ, specifically with regard to your interaction with the Scriptures. Point number one, to avoid apostasy, you need to saturate your thinking with Scripture. The word apostasy means to leave the faith, to depart from uh, the, the, con- uh, the conversion that you had before Christ. If, if most of you, which I think as I'm looking around here, many of you have professed faith in Christ, and I praise God for that. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that you're going to depart eventually. I hope you're not the statistic of 8 out of 10 or 5 out of 10. I would love for you to be those who endure in their faith for the rest of your lives. But here's how I know that's going to happen. God's Word makes it clear that it is those who know their Bible, who master their Bible, that become mastered by their Bible. When you master your English Bible, your English Bible masters you and changes the way that you think. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, one of the things I hate most about washing dishes is when the, when the sponge smells. Like you wash your dish with the sponge and then the smell of the sponge ends up on your hands and it, it takes hours to go away, right? You ever, you ever have that experience? You get as a sponge. A sponge starts out dry or at least kind of dry open the package, take it out of its plastic wrapping, and the dry sponge doesn't smell poorly. It smells quite nice, actually, until you start using it. And then you soak it in whatever it is that you're washing that night for the, for the nice dinner dishes or whatever. And because you're using that sponge to soak in all the particles and bacteria that go along with your, your evening's meal, that sponge now smells exactly like that food, except worse. It doesn't smell fresh anymore. It doesn't smell nice. But that sponge has soaked in all of those things. The sponge now smells a lot like your dinner. You need to have a relationship with the Word of God such that you're constantly soaking up God's Word where your mind is saturated with it. Where when you think about life and, uh, and school choices and boyfriends and girlfriends and school dances and the musical choices that you listen to, you have God's Word informing every aspect of it. It needs to saturate your brain. And you need to do this repeatedly, constantly. I like the way that the, 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 uh, the preacher in Hebrew says it, like the, these people that are mature have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. They've grown into this state of maturity because they've had the progress and the repetition that goes along with that. Speaking of repetition, one of the most incredible things that I've learned is that 
when it comes to baseball, hitting a fast pitch, uh, a 90, 95 mile per hour fast pitch is actually physically impossible. But they hit them, Pastor Rod. Yes, I know that. <laughs> Here's what's happening. You'll notice that as you, in this graphic here that you're watching, and I, I ripped this off from Business Insider if you want to see it. Uh, but it, it takes uh, just a blink, less than a blink of an eye for a fast pitch to go from home base to where you can actually swing and hit it. And so as a baseball player sees a pitcher winding up, the baseball player has to make a judgment before the guy even has a, a chance to throw the ball to make a decision whether or not he's going to hit or swing at the pitch. And so if you're looking at 60 feet between the mound and home plate, the, the, the batter, that's the word for that, batter has to decide in, in milliseconds, milliseconds, not seconds, milliseconds, whether or not he can swing at this. Yale physicist says it's physically impossible to hit a fastball. A couple things help these baseball players. One of them is that they have great vision. Most of them, 20, 2012 is what you saw there. And as they're watching the pitcher uh, wind up to throw the ball, they're actually using their, mo their momentum, their motion at the plate or at the mound to determine whether or not they're going to hit the ball. They're observing the, the mechanical movements of the picture and saying, okay, I've seen thousands upon thousands of fastballs, curveballs, sinkers. I've seen these and therefore I know how the picture, the picture generally moves. And so I'm going to use that data from the mound. And before he even throws it, I'm going to make a decision whether or not I'm going to swing at it. Are you tracking me here? He has so much experience, the, the batter has so much experience hitting thousands upon thousands of pitches that when the pitcher is about to wind up to throw the ball, he can discern from afar with his stellar vision and his, re his repetition what that ball is going to look like. And he's going to make his best guess and he's going to swing at it. He can do this because even though it's physically impossible and even though he has great eyesight, he has thousands of hours of practice, maybe more than that, where he can determine whether or not the ball is something he can hit. So with all that said, what you notice here is that this guy, through thousands of hours of repetition and practice, is able to look at what happens at the, at, at the mound and determine whether or not he, he can hit it. This is the same with your life and the way that you interact with Scripture. Thousands of hours of your time invested in learning and mastering the Bible will allow you to make decisions about your life that are going to feel largely intuitive going to feel like something internal. There's going to be a gauge inside of you that says, this is a good thing or this is a bad thing. The powers of your discernment will be sharpened and shaped by your interaction with Scripture, if it's working properly. A couple of notes about this. If you're going to saturate your, your thinking with Scripture, you should know off the, top of your, uh, off the top here, it's going to be hard. Some of us have a relationship with the Bible that we read it, and that's kind of the extent of it. We check off the box. And if you're good at doing it every day, praise God, that's a great start. But you must know that to master your Bible, to interact with it in such a way that it's protective against apostasy, you're going to need to spend a lot of time with it, studying it, thinking about it. And it's going to be difficult. It's going to challenge you in ways that are going to push you beyond your comfort level. I've said to you before, and I'm not sure who I heard this from first, but if, when you read the Bible, if God's not challenging you, it's because you probably made God in your image you start to shape God in your image where you're no longer confronted by him. You're no longer offended by him. God offends our sensibilities. God is God and we are human. And therefore, there's always going to be a disconnect between what we think is right and what God says is right. And if you're reading your Bible and you're never coming to grips with that difficulty and saying, man, God, this is hard for me, then you may not be interacting with Scripture the way you should. Saturating your thinking with Scripture will be a hard, difficult thing to do. But it's so good. If you've ever studied your Bible 
and found it when it's hard to be so good and satisfying, that's because God made you to enjoy difficulty. In fact, one of my favorite books uh, by Cal Newport, it's called Deep Work. He says this, human beings, it seems, are at their best when immersed deeply in something challenging. How much more true is that when it comes to challenging yourself to know and study scripture? In fact, I have one free resource that I would love for you to pick up. Uh, first of all, if you don't have a Logos now, if you don't have a Logos account, get one. You could get the free, there's a f- basic free version of their software that you can get on your phone and on your computer, etc. One of the resources that I would love for you to pick up is called the Faith Life Study Bible. It's free, zero dollars. You download it, you use it, you can use it as a reference point. And what that little study Bible will do is it will lead you to other possibly helpful resources as you study the scripture. I use this one pretty regularly, actually. When I do my DBR, I usually have my Faith Life Study Bible on my second panel in my Logos as I'm working through text. And it's been a really helpful tool for me. And I think you'll appreciate it. And its price tag is right in the sweet spot for you. So it should be hard, but it doesn't mean you can't do it without tools. Saturate your thinking with scripture. Find resources that are going to help you study it. And it's going to be difficult. But not only that, when when the preacher says, look, you ought to be teachers by now, that means for you, whenever you're interacting with the Bible, whenever you're interacting with scripture, you must be in some way trying to commit it to memory and trying to communicate it to somebody else. I spent a lot of time up here talking to you guys and saying, yeah, you need to do this, you need to do that. And I, I, I kind of on the inside say, man, this is, this is helpful and this is necessary, but I really would love for you guys to find some way to not only ingest this, but to digest this and then to teach it to someone else. Scripture wants all of us to be teachers, not a capital T like what I do, but he wants, God wants you guys to be teachers, to talk to other people about what you know to be true, which is why so often some of the questions I, I try to get you to go and do something else with it, to talk to someone else, to evangelize your, your friends and, and share with them what you've learned. That's going to be a reinforcing pattern in your life that God will use to keep you from, uh, from leaving the faith. Saturating your thinking with Scripture. It's going to be hard. Scripture must be memorized and communicated. This is one way that you do that. And of course, it should lead and it will lead to deeper understanding. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. The one who is skilled in the word of righteousness is someone who spent time marinating on the Bible. Okay, I gave you one free resource. I want to encourage you to buy this next resource. Okay, I want to encourage you to buy this. If you don't have this, um, it's a short one, but I would love for you to read this book. It's called The Man Christ Jesus. It's by Dr. Bruce Ware. We've had him here before. I've read this book and I love it. I love, love, love this book. I would love for you to love the book by picking it up and reading it. It's only 162 pages. Came out just a few years ago. Only 162 pages. I promise you, it is so rich and theologically meaty. Like it's just so good. You'll read it and you'll be like, yes, that's my Jesus. I love that. And the book talks about the nature of Jesus' humanity. I think you'll, you'll find it to be a great resource. This is one way to saturate your thinking with Scripture. As we continue on here, all these things are true. But also, as I said earlier, when you saturate your thinking with Scripture, it will develop into intuition, clarity, and precision. There's a lot of great areas in the way that we live in the world. Um, I brought up the masks as one one situation. Um, uh, Several, maybe a year ago, two years ago at this point, uh, someone asked me a question in a Q&A. And it was a pretty simple question, but I refused to answer it. Because it's one of those questions where if you mishear me, you'll, you'll think I'm telling you to do something I'm not telling you to do. Now, I'm not going to tell you the question because I don't want you to ask me it again. But I will tell you there are certain things that I, as a Christian, I am I'm convinced of and affirmed of, things that I feel convicted about, that it would take a lot of time for me to explain why I think the way I do about certain things. 
because I feel like I've, I've been in the scriptures for so long. I just have this kind of foundation of the way that I see the world. I see the world through scripture and that helps me to make projections or uh, guesses about how the world operates given the biblical, biblical framework. I'm getting too wordy here. Let me say it simply. Some of you guys are really into your sports. You're really into your, uh, you're really into different, uh, your book series, you know, your Harry Potter. I just started watching Harry Potter with my, my family. It's the first time I've seen it. Um, I don't get it. I just, I don't get it. It's fine, I guess. But I, okay. My, my, my son's into it. I'm going to be into it. We're going to watch it together. But when you're into something, like you get to see nuance in that. And you build this intuition of, and, and this clarity about it that other people wouldn't be able to see. You have this ability to uh, understand something that the rest of us can. Oh, here's a good example. This is what I was trying to think. Okay, I watched the Super Bowl. And there were several times when I saw the players on the field and I'm like, it's chaos. The guy, these big buff dudes are hitting these other big buff dudes and the quarterback is throwing things different places. Like, why do you throw it there versus there? Occasionally, I could see what's happening on the field, but largely to an outsider like myself, when I watch that, it's, it's chaotic. I don't really understand what's happening. But if you were to talk to the announcers or anybody, any player on the field, they're looking at the football game and saying, wow, that's, that's great strategy. I like what uh, Stafford, I like what Stafford did there. I like what the Bengals guy did. The guy who threw the ball. What's his name? Burrow. His style is just too loud for me. I was turned off by that. I almost rooted for the Bengals, but then I saw Burrow's suit and I'm like, no thanks. Never mind. I'm going to Rams. Rams all the way. Anyway, I digress. When, you, when you're looking at the game as, a, as an aficionado, someone who loves a sport, who knows how it works, you see beauty and intricacy, you see strategy. You, if you're someone like me, you don't know the sport, you see <laughs> what happened. That's how it works when you have scripture and you have someone who knows their Bible, who loves their Bible. You can see clarity. You can see precisely where an outsider sees chaos. They see confusion. Wait, who... Who are the priests? The sons of Aaron or the Levites? And who's tearing down the, who's tearing down the tabernacle again? And, and what period of history is this? And why does this matter to the, to the, where's the temple? I thought there was a temple. Aren't they sacrificing in a temple? And where's, uh, where's King David in the story? All this goes into the pot here of you're soaking or saturating your thinking in scripture. When you put more of God's word in your head, you're able to discern a lot more with clarity and precision. That's the point I'm getting at. Intuition comes from the, the greater the scriptural knowledge you have. Okay, one more thing on this, on this list here. All this is, of course, grounded on the fundamentals. I don't ever want to say all these things without making clear that all this comes back to the elementary doctrine of Christ. This all goes back to the gospel, who God is, who we are. So everything that we're, we're talking about, everything that the preacher wants us to do is grounded on who God is and what he's done for us. It's like the roots and the leaves, right? The root of the Christian tree is the gospel, what God has done for us through Christ. We are saved by grace through faith and this not of ourselves so that no one can boast. If you're non-Christian here today. I'm sorry, this is a lot of stuff that you probably don't need to hear right now. But what you can hear is if you're a non-Christian, the gospel is that God wants to save you and he offers you a path through Jesus Christ. His death on the cross makes us able to be forgiven if we repent and trust him. That's the foundation of all that Christianity stands upon. But from that foundation, now the root system uh, supports everything else. You want to talk about eschatology, the doctrine of end times. You want to talk about anthropology, the doctrine of who man is. You want to talk about any other ology. It's all based on the root system of who Christ is and what he's come to do for us. Everything goes back to that. So if you want to get... Uh, 
If you want to be reinforced and not depart from the faith, you must, 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 must master your Bible. Let it saturate your heart, your mind, your thinking. Let it utterly change and rearrange you. Otherwise, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8 can be true for you. Now, this is the part that I don't like, but let's go through it anyway. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. Let's find out what happens for those who don't heed the counsel of letting the Word of God utterly change and rearrange them. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gifts and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Let me help simplify this really quickly here. I'm going to draw on the screen again just so I can make this clear. This, it is impossible, goes with this. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. The them refers to the people who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then they fall away. So you, you understand what's happening here. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance for these kinds of people. That is to say, and it sounds like this, it sounds like, it sounds like the preacher saying, look, if you're a Christian and then you decide not to be a Christian, you can no longer be a Christian after that. It's impossible to become a Christian after you stop becoming a Christian. That's what it sounds like. I don't think that's what's happening. Uh, remember, the whole analogy I gave you about the warnings in Hebrews, they're the guardrails on the mountain, right? As you're ascending up Mount, uh, the, the, up, up Big Bear, there are guardrails that keep you from driving over the cliff. This is one of those guardrails. The preacher is saying, look, if you were to taste and see that God is good, if you were enlightened with the Word of God, you, even, you enjoy preaching, and you have, uh, you've tasted the powers of the age to come. And I think about the gospel and the future, uh, the future of the church, and I get excited. And then if you fall away after having all those experiences, there is a state wherein you cannot return to repentance because, he says here, you're crucifying once again the Son of God to your own harm. There is a kind of person, I think, that he's getting at here where they deny Christ in such a way there's no recourse for them. There's no going back. They're an apostate person who leaves and doesn't have access back into the house. It's so, it's so uh, devastating that the preacher says, look, it's like they're looking at Christ on the cross and saying, yep, that's what he deserved. Yep, no longer with that guy. Yep, humiliated and shamed. He deserves that. I don't want him anymore. Crucify him again? Sure, I don't care. Not my savior. This is written to a Christian audience. This was preached to a Christian audience. The idea behind this here is that there is a kind of person, potentially, who can experience all the benefits of Christianity and still turn away. The preacher goes on to give an illustration. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those, whose sake, whose, useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, they receive a blessing from God. But... If it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. He says, the Christians who heed this word, heed the warning, are fruitful. The land receives rain. There's rain that's fallen down on you. The rain of the word of God. He's giving you gospel. He's giving you the word of God. And the result for the Christian is productivity, a fruitful life. 
a life that responds by grace through faith to God's word and says, yes, I want to do whatever God wants me to do. But there's a type of person who receives the preaching, receives the gifts of God and says, no, thanks. I still don't want that. They produce thorns and thistles. And he says, for that kind of ground, that kind of soil, the end for that soil is to be burned, to be decimated. There's no hope for that soil. What I need you to understand from this text is that I, I don't think Scripture gives us any reason to believe a Christian who is genuinely saved can ever depart from Christ. If you could lose your salvation, you would because you're just not strong enough. What I do think is happening here is the preacher wants you to know that there is a, a, a right mentality to God's word, to God's gospel, to God's people, a right mentality that... Uh, let me, let me go back a slide here and show you what I'm getting at. There's a mentality here. See, for this person, this mentality, they, they taste all the things that God has to offer. They reject that. The mentality of the Christian is, I'm going to see all these things and recognize, man, I need Jesus Christ. I can't allow myself to get lazy or sullen or to get off track. I need to stay close to Christ. And to understand his word, I need to respond to his word. This person doesn't do that. This person uh, finds themselves saying, yeah, that was a really good sermon. I really appreciate that. This person uh, enjoys the prospect of what God has for them and yet still denies him. Christians are going to see this, read this and say, not I. Lord, never me. Please protect me. Lord, guard me against this. I don't want to be unfruitful. I don't want to be the land that drinks the rain and produces thorns and thistles. I said earlier, Christians must strive to grow or be doomed to go. There is no Christian who hears the word of God and says, no thanks. At least not for long. I do think a Christian can be in sin and be rebellious for a period of time, however long that time is, I don't know. But I do know this, in general, as a rule of life, Christians who know God's word respond to God's word. To avoid apostasy, you need to compel yourself to rightly respond to scripture. Rightly respond to it. Instead of being the one who hears it and says, yeah, it was a good sermon. No, rightly respond. And we'll define what that is in a second here. Life or death. Christians are either making progress up or you're sliding down. There's not a middle ground here. There's no neutral in the Christian life. You know, speaking of the Super Bowl, I went and looked up the cost of tickets. Did you guys look that up? I was curious. Ticketmaster listed the Super Bowl ticket prices as this. $6,800 for the lowest ticket. $6,800. Now, if you wanted the VIP ticket, that was a mere $81,800. Now imagine with me for a second, you just, you, you realize, you know, Pastor Rod's going to Texas. I want to take him to a, a, I want to take him to the coolest Super Bowl game ever. So you save up your dollars and cents and you bought us two tickets to the Super Bowl. And because you really love me, you got me the VIP ticket. So we're now in the VIP section. You just spent all this money on us going to this amazing, we're in the box seats. We got waiters and, um, or I guess, I don't know if that's, appropriate these days, a servant person delivering <laughs> us food. You know, they're feeding us strawberries and we're enjoying like the food, the taco platter bar. You spent all this money for me. But, and you know that I'm not a big sports fan, but you were just thinking, you know, the gesture of you giving this to me, you, uh, how could my heart not be melted, right? So when we get there, I'm kind of pouting, like, I, I don't want to be here. I don't even care about sports. Why did you do this? I'm mad that you even made me come to this. Like, okay, you, you spent $81,000 on my, I guess I'll come. So as we're sitting there with the taco bar, I'm just mad at the tacos. It's a stupid taco. 
it's probably not even real meat. <laughs> and then we're watching the, the, the football game, and, you know, you're a Rams fan, and so you're really hoping I'd root for the Rams with you, and I'm just, I'm not having it. I started rooting for the Bengals just to irritate you. Man, stupid, stupid game. And then, you know, fourth quarter, two minutes to go, two-minute two minute, uh, timeout, or two minutes to the game, and I just get up and leave. You know, I'm, I, thank you. I'm, I'm head out. I'm done. See you. My guess is that you would be mortally offended and you would tell me, you know, you need to go to Texas faster. Can you leave sooner than this? We're done with you now. Thank you. You may leave. And of course, you'd have every right to be offended, right? You scrimped and you saved. You did everything you could to make it an excellent time for me at the Super Bowl. And I just kind of gave you the, like, no, I don't want this. I gave you the cold shoulder. How do you think God feels when we give him the cold shoulder, when he gives us his word? He lovingly spent every dime he had, so to speak, to save us by sending his son. He liquidated his accounts to save us, and then he gives us his word in order that we might respond by faith. And we say, no, thanks, God. I don't want that. I don't even like that commandment. That's a, that's a dumb commandment. I don't want this. Like, it's, it's a silly illustration, but it, it makes the point. We respond to, to, to God like that all the time. We may not think that. We may not be so juvenile and silly, but that's, that's the thing. We have every uh, responsibility to respond to Scripture the right way. Well, first of all, let me tell you this. You should know this by now. The way that you respond rightly is by guarding your heart. Your heart, by the way, is the control center, the command center of your life. It includes everything, your emotion, your intellect, your will. You must compel yourself to respond rightly to God's Word. When, and here's what that looks like. Uh, when you read Scripture, there is a sense in which you know that there should be a, a way that you feel about it. When you read uh, the Gospels, you should feel a certain way toward Jesus and toward his enemies. You should have a certain mind toward what God is trying to conjure up in you in those texts. When you don't feel that, you should not get up and walk away and say, no big deal. You must appropriate the word where you're allowing God to hammer your heart with his truth. I was just talking to someone recently and I said, look, you, whatever you have to do to get yourself to be in the text, to love the text, to respond to the text, do that. It is a life and death situation. Whatever you have to do to disrupt your pattern of rebellion or disenchantment or frustration or boredom, disrupt it so that you can, by God's grace, hear the text and respond to the text. Your heart must be engaged with the text. If you're just reading as an intellectual, just, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but if you're only reading that way, you're reading the wrong way. If you're only reading to get the feelings from God, you're reading the wrong way. If you're only reading to simply obey a command, you're reading the wrong way. The faithful response to the text is your whole heart. What's the great commandments? Okay, I heard you guys mumbling it. Thank you guys, good job. Love the Lord your God with all of your strength. Four usually, we throw that fourth one there. You display this with your interaction in Scripture. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9? I discipline my body and I bring it under, I like the way that this version of the Bible puts it, I bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. You have to bring your heart under strict control to bring your whole self under the dominion of God. That's the tone and tenor that I'm getting at when I say that we have to guard our heart. Here's another one. Compel yourself to rightly respond to Scripture by killing the little sins. My aunt had this dog, actually two dogs. Uh, and when I saw them for the first time, they were adorable. Actually, her name's Thea. I don't call her aunt. She's my, my dad's side of the family. It's Thea. Thea and Theo. 
Tia means aunt in Espanol, in case you didn't know. I'm Mexican. I don't know if you knew that. Mi Espanol es muy bueno. It's muy bueno. My tia, her name, my tia Chata. My tia Chata. And I, that's, that's a nickname. I don't think that's her real name. My tia Chata had these dogs that were cute. They were adorable. So she said, oh, here's my puppies. And uh, I didn't know at the time, but these were the kind of dogs that are really aggressive as they get older. But as puppies, they're cute. They're holding the dog. Oh, this is adorable. I like this little guy. It was probably 11 or 12 at the time. Came back several months later, and these dogs at this point were much bigger. I was a little more terrified of this dog because they were the aggressive kind. In any event, I still went outside. I went to go play with the dogs. I thought they remembered me, and they, you know, they went and smelled me in all the places that they do, and that, I think they, they recognized me. I started getting comfortable with them. I started playing with them and, you know, hassling them and tossing them a little bit and just doing those things. I don't know what comp- compelled me to do this, but one of the dogs, he's, he's like just chilling, standing on his four legs, and I was going to pretend to ride him. <laughs> Bad move. <laughs> so I went on top of him, and I just kind of, I placed a little bit of pressure on him. He didn't like it. He do, he, you know when dogs are in the defensive part, they go, you know, they turn their head to the side and give you that look like, you're rolling up on me, I'm about to bite your face off. Well, 11 me didn't know that. So as I'm <laughs> sitting on this, or about to pretend it's on the dog, uh, he does the thing, and then, and, then, and then in a moment, like in a blink of an eye, he turns around and bites my face. Serious. Except he missed most of my face and he only got my lip. And then he just pulled my lip which, of course, caused my lip to tear. And so I'm looking at all this blood coming from my face. I'm looking at him and I say, what's up, dog? What do we do? What happened? Like, why? You know, and now at this point, I'm worried. I'm concerned. And so I go back to in the house and my tia Chata, she's like, oh, no, mijo. She's trying to console me. And I, I probably started crying at this point. And my mom's looking at me and saying, what did you do? I'm like, I don't know. I was just trying to pet with the dog. Anyway, she took me to the hospital. I got several stitches. And then, sadly, they, uh, my tia Chata put the dog down. You bite a person. I feel bad about that. But he deserved it. So my point is... <laughs> my point. <laughs> no, no, I love dogs. Let's go cats. I love cats. <laughs> when you have a puppy, it's much easier to control it. There's a lot less threat. But when the puppy grows and becomes strong and able to fight back in, in more formidable ways, that's when you're in danger. I, of course, put myself in that situation, but sin works the same way. When your sin is a puppy, it's better to kill the puppy. Sad as that sounds. If you wait until your sin grows to be fully mature, that sin will devastate you. Sin is like cancer. It metastasizes and it kills you. Sin is like a puppy growing into a ferocious dog that wants to attack you and bite your face off like it tried to do with me. Sin is not something to be messed with. And there's no such thing as a little sin. I'm using that kind of cutely to say, look, anytime you experience sin in your life, you should say to yourself, what do I do with this? I got to crush it. Otherwise, it'll crush me. Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But Christians, Christians, if you, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you're going to live. You live by killing. You live by killing your sin. You live by making war with your flesh and not letting your flesh overwhelm and overcome you. Kill the little sins. Last response to scripture here. If you're compelling yourself, you must make yourself do this. You must make yourself guard your heart. You must uh, promote the killing of little sins in your life. And you must also keep a holy fear of God. 
I think one of the whole purposes of a text like this is to remind us, look, you need to recognize God is not to be trifled with. God is a holy, uh, uh, fearful God. And granted, while we're while we're united with him in Christ, that doesn't change the fact that God is God. He's the king of the universe. And therefore, we should always maintain a, uh, a humble and holy and righteous kind of fear of God. Driving up the mountain on Big Bear at 3.30, and it's really snowy and icy outside. I'll tell you what you're not going to do. You're not going to be drifting and trying to do Tokyo drift on this mountain. You're going to be driving very slow. You're going to put your, your snow chains on, and you're going to make sure you hug the mountain so that you don't fall over the edge. Hebrews chapter 6 is, it's snowy out. There's, there's you know, it's, it's ice on the road. Hug the mountain. Stay close to Christ. Guard your heart. Kill the little sins. Keep a holy fear of who God is and what he's done for you. Otherwise, we crucify Jesus Christ all over again. Okay. Here's how we know this is a Christian audience. Take a look at these last few verses. We're going to wrap it up here. Pastor says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. There you go. He's talking to Christians. Though I tell you this, I'm using this as a warning. God's going to use this to sanctify you. But in your case, I feel great that you guys are going, you're, you're saved and you're living out the gospel in your life. Verse 10, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. He's saying, look, there's evidence in your life that you are growing in fruitfulness, that the, that the rain that's falling on your ground is not producing thorns and thistles, it's producing fruit. That's obvious. He says, but, but going further, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the very end, so that none of you, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he's saying, look, uh, I don't want you, I want you to strive to be found faithful in Christ, to find your assurance in Christ, and recognize that uh, you should be following others who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The word sluggish in verse 12. I'm going to highlight that for you. Sluggish. The word sluggish in verse 12 of chapter 6 is the same word for dull in, in chapter 5, verse 11. This is called a, uh, kind of like a bookmark or a bookend. Um, it's an inclusio, technically, but they're bookends. This is telling you that this whole section goes together. The, the, the desire of the pastor here in Hebrews is saying, look, I don't want you to be sluggish. I don't want you to be lazy. Therefore, uh, follow those who, who are, are through faith and patience, inheriting the promises, uh, and do it energetically. Be, uh, be forceful in your love for Christ. Look, if you're serious about your academic career, I can probably assure that most of your parents, they would do whatever they could to put you in the best school possible. Your parents would, uh, would find you, say, oh, you want to go to the best school for academics? We're going to take you to the best school for academics. Or if you're a football player and you say, look, I really want to go to college to play, to play football there. I'm going to try to find the best school for my football. I want to, I want to move and find this place. I might join this, this football team here. I want to be part of the best football team around. If you're serious about your theater career, you might look for the best school for performing arts. And so you might find yourself here at this school. With all these things, if you're serious about any aspect of your life, you're going to make sacrifices to do the thing that relates to that. So if you're part of the football team, you're going to go to the, the, the practices. If you're part of the, the dance squad, you're going to be at all the rehearsals. If you're, if you're really interested in getting good grades for, uh, for college or doing the IB test, you're going to go to every study hall. You're going to make sure you know and master your content. You're going to 
Uh, you might, if your parents are really interested in this too, they might move homes to make it happen. You might pay a lot of money to join the, to join the club teams. You might submit to a grueling schedule just for the privilege of being part of a team. All of this you'll do to advance your academic, your physical, your sports career, all these. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. Someone wrote a while back, and I thought this was great. This is talking to your parents, but nonetheless, it's important. There is a 0.0296 chance that your child will become a professional athlete. There is a 0.0086 chance that your child will become a famous celebrity. There is a 100% chance that your child will stand before Jesus. When it comes to finding the best in your field for your particular thing, I applaud the fact that you'll do anything you can to be with the best coaches, to be in the best team, to be at the best school. That's great. God, God be with you. But don't do that to the neglect of finding the best coaches you can, the best godly mentors you can for your soul, which is infinitely more valuable. To avoid apostasy, disciple under the godliest coach you can find. I'm going to be rapid fire because I'm taking longer on this than I wanted to. So I'm going to give you some things to look for in a coach. Verses are next to it. I'd love for you to go through these verses later, but I just want you to know I'm getting this from the text here. If you're looking for things in a coach, the first thing I want you to look for is punctiliousness. I know. What does that mean? Put that on there on purpose. Stretch your vocabulary here. I was looking for the right word, and I thought this word best suited it. Punctiliousness. Showing great attention to detail or correct behavior. You want a coach who shows great attention to detail to your discipleship. And I thought about the, the, the pastor of Hebrews who's preaching to this crowd. He's giving them these strong warnings and then follows it up with comfort and assurance. You're, you're in the faith. I know that you're trusting Christ. So keep going and don't get lazy about that. That is an attention to detail and a kind of intentionality that you should look for in godly coaches. You should find godly coaches who are punctilious. But also, it should be obvious, you should find a coach that's also humble. You should find someone who's lowly and meek, someone who's not caught up in their own headlines or press. They're not quick to boast about their accomplishments. You want the meek and the lowly person. You need a godly coach in your corner who's not afraid to, to, to approach you with the truth. And that takes a great deal of humility. That means they have to be okay with you not liking them, at least for a season. You need a coach who's attentive to detail. You need a coach who's humble and is willing to lower himself or herself for your sake. You also need a coach who has confidence, not in themselves. They have confidence in Christ and the gospel. You want someone who has great assurance that they are loved by God and that they're going to heaven when they die. You want someone who's rooted and grounded in the gospel, so much so that they have lives that testify to that in every way that you can conceive. Here's another one. You want someone who has spunk. It's not a spiritual word, but I thought that was fitting. Someone who's spunk. You want someone who has a strong, gritty work ethic. Someone who's gone in their faith. You want the most disciplined person you could find. That's a good word for spunk. Someone who's disciplined. Someone who doesn't look at their faith and say, I'll do it if it feels good. This person cons considers their faith as a necessary component of their life every day, no matter what. If they're in the hospital dying with cancer, that person's reading their Bible still. And they're praying and they're witnessing to the hospital staff. You want someone who so loves God that they schedule it and they make it happen regardless of what the circumstances are. She's not sluggish. She doesn't just wait till it feels good. She doesn't mind pain. She embraces it because she knows it's going to make her stronger. That's the kind of coach you want. This one's obvious, but I'm going to say it as well. This person who's uh, your coach or your godly coach is someone who... Uh, is, an, is pursuing faith in Christ. Their, their love of Christ is what produces their faith in Christ. 
This is, of course, the most important feature. You should be able to see from a godly coach that they love people. The godliest person is someone who loves God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their love for people is evident. You should be able to see some people, the, the godly coach that I'm talking to you about, you should be able to see that they love people well. Not perfectly, but well. Find that person. Tackle that person and make them your godly coach. One more. The person that you should look for should have some longevity. They shouldn't be a new convert to the faith. They should not be, ideally, not a peer. You want a coach to be someone who's been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, and then sold the t-shirt because they already had it for so long. You want someone who's been in the faith far longer than you have. Which, I mean, if you think about all these qualities, when you look for a godly coach here, uh, really, we're talking about some older people. Probably. One of the things I would encourage you to think about, and this is not one of my points here, but I want you to think about this. How many old people do you have in your life where they match that and you're like, I want to sit at your feet. Teach me. Tell me what you've been through. Tell me about how I can live my life better. Get old people in your life. People that have gray hair are people that you should be spending time with. I would encourage you to go to class or what's now called ABF just to be around old people. Spend time with them. Ask them questions. Get to know them and help them uh, disciple you. Now, of course, when I talk about coaches, you know that there are some phenomenal coaches sitting right next to you in this very room. You know that there are people that have been here for you for months, years even, people that have dedicated time and energy, people that will play your silly games and, and enjoy your presence and condescend to you in all these glorious ways. You should definitely take advantage of these coaches in your life. And in fact, if you're not meeting with your coaches on a regular basis, going through a book or talking about scripture or going through some kind of discipleship-oriented plan, you're missing out. That's the whole reason they're here. They would love to spend time with you. They're always willing take advantage of that. Here's another coach that you should think about. I know that that's a, that's a picture of a beautiful library. You should be coached by all the books that God has put in your life. You can have almost the world's entire library on this thing right here. You should certainly take advantage of that. And also, if I could throw you one more, you should also have a, a, a long list of podcasts that are, of people that are godly people that you could say, I'm going to listen to this coach. I'm going to let them coach me. So here are three picks for you that I'd like for you to start listening to. Okay, you ready for this? I'm just going to do them rapid fire. I've got three. Ask Pastor John by Desiring God. Ask Pastor John is John Piper's answers to a whole host of strange, weird questions. And I think a lot of them, most of them are really, really exceptional. And they're only like 15 or 20 minutes. You'll like this podcast. Listen to that one. This one's apologetically oriented. Greg Kolkel's an older guy too. Um, Stand to Reason. See, he's an apologist. He listens to arguments and he generally does a really good job tackling them. I'd love for you to listen to him. He's got an hour show on a regular basis. And this last one, I, don't, this, this, I only had three and I tried to narrow it down. It took me a long time to figure this out. But finally, I settled on this one, even though he's kind of outside of our stripe of theology. I'd love for you to listen to Renewing Your Mind by R.C. Sproul. He's one of the coolest Presbyterian teacher preachers you'll ever meet. He's, he's no longer with us. He's dead, but his teaching is still very much alive. You should definitely listen to these three. If you can listen to these three this week, I promise you, you'll be blessed. And that's just a start. If you want to listen to more, let me know. Find the godly coaches. Attach yourself to them. And this way, it will reinforce your commitment against apostatizing. What are the odds of you reaching Mount Everest? Well, Mount Everest is actually <laughs> surprisingly more, uh, more favorable than you might think. In 2019, 955 people attempted to reach the summit. 
two-thirds were successful. It's pretty good. And in fact, what you should know is that more than 600 climbers have actually reached the top of Mount Everest over the, I mean, I mean it's, and it's increasingly, there's numbers growing and growing because people are getting a lot more excited about doing this. It seems a lot more realistic. And the mountain actually only gets taller and taller. So if you want to climb it, now's the time. Don't wait till later. It's going to get taller and more difficult. Which is why I'm introducing Manhood Mount Everest. We're going to climb this together. For the low price of $35,000, you can climb Mount Everest with me. Just kidding. We're not doing that. Climbing Mount Everest is not impossible. Finishing the Christian race is not impossible. But there are unwise, unwise ways to do it, and there are wise ways to do it. If you're going to stay close to Christ, you have to know your Bible. You have to let it saturate you, change and challenge your thinking. And you have to find godly mentors or Sherpas to help you on your journey. In doing so, you will prevent yourself from leaving the faith. Because Christians must strive to grow or be doomed to go. Those who strive to go recognize Jesus is better. Let's pray. And let's pray.